One path, one choice, we win or everyone dies. This is There and or Back Again, a special series by my brother, my captain, my podcast. Normally, our adventures have us journeying across Middle Earth, but here we jump into hyperspace to a galaxy far, far away. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is Rick's Road, episode 12 and the season finale for Andor. Our spoiler warning is we will be spoiling everything that has aired thus far in Andor and any knowledge we may have of the Star Wars universe to date. Between the two of us, we've consumed way too many Star Wars books, cartoons, comics, and games, so stuff will invariably come out. Welcome to Algiers 1954, to Belfast 1972, to Philadelphia 1985. Welcome back to Ferrix, 5 BBY. It's hard to summarize this episode without cheapening it. The magic really is in the details. Wilman, Salmon Pak's son, tinkers away in his father's shop, a hollow of his father keeping watch, his martyred guardian angel. We all know what he's building, we know it in our souls, but we don't need to be told. Rebellions are built on hope, and art is built on trust. And this show trusts us. Our focus moves throughout the city and throughout our cast, as our whole galaxy descends on Ferrix. We have Cinta, going momentarily doe-eyed as she lures Cashin's ISB lookout into a building and stabs him. A quick, clean, undramatic death for a real pathetic little Nazi. Sorrel Khan and the Iron Brew Hun show up, seated first on one of Brian Suter's ugliest fleet of buses. Hey Brian, how about you fuck off out of Dundee? Where the two of them immediately switch hats, in a moment that is almost endearing? And we've also got Vel arriving, and Luthen too, each fighting their own psychological battles in the midst of something greater. There's Brasso, perfect, immense Brasso, who keeps everyone from falling apart, not through preternatural political new or by tapping into some magical entity that controls all things, but by simply being a likable, level-headed guy. I loved your mom, he tells Cashin, and we know this, of course we know this, because Ferrix writ large weeps for Marva, and in this moment, and in this series, she is the Andor for whom this show is named. And we feel that heroism and the love it inspired as Brasso delivers her last words to Cashin, who, ill-advisedly but understandably, has arrived for his mother's funeral. In her dying moments, Marva needed Cashin to know one thing. I love you more than anything you could ever do wrong. And Cashin takes that love, and he does what's best to do with it. He uses it to protect and defend those crushed under the heel of oppression. He goes for Bix, and Brasso stands in his stead, the pallbearer, the brick carrier, the unshakable foundation upon which this rebellion is laid. But there need be no rebellion without an oppressive force to catalyze it, and so arrives Dadramiro in the first of many scenes in this episode that featured prominently in the show's trailer. She takes a lap around the city, plain clothes, and insists upon one thing and one thing only. We must take Cash and Andor alive. 
Of course, her insistence on that means she misses the spectacularly unspectacular demise of Anton Krieger at Spellhouse. All 30 dead despite her own wishes. It's a blink and you'll miss it moment, but that's the point, isn't it? When the atrocities of the Empire are so frequent and so numerous, it's hard to stop and mourn for a mere 30 dead. But we do stop and mourn for one life, for Marva, as the daughters of Ferrix and Star Wars' most spectacular band play a funerary march for the ages. Peep the oboe played horizontally, the flutes with two piccolos welded on, and the French horn with a polygon bell. And the music really does come to the forefront here. It tells us as much about the story as the soaring French horns do as Luke Skywalker stares out at the binary sunset. A new world struggling to be born, all to the sound of the people's marching band. At the end of the march, B2 delivers Marva's last words, an enormous hologram projected above the teary-eyed masses of Ferrix. And this is Leia's message to Obi-Wan, but for the people. This isn't the privatized call to action of the original trilogy, a desperate plea for a single hero to rise above the rest and save us from ourselves. This is a rallying cry. This is community made manifest. We have slumbered too long, says Marva, and that specky little imperial prick in his shitty little black cape starts to cotton on to what's happening as he prepares to send the cops out on the unarmed mourners. Hold fast to one another and take down the fucking empire, she says. And this one statement is enough to trigger an unholy cascade of abuse and violent repression from the empire. Out there, Cashin is playing hero, and there's really no point pretending that Diego Luna isn't in a league of his own right now. But the most beautiful moment of this episode isn't the heartbreaking reunion between Cass and Bix, nor is it Brasso beating the shit out of a pig with a brick made of Marva, nor is it Luthen cracking and showing genuine emotion at Marva's post-mortem words. No, the moment of real unbridled beauty is the moment that Woman Pack lobs his handmade pipe bomb past Imperial lines, setting off not just his own explosive, but all the grenades the imps had prepped and ready to use against innocent civilians. At the end of it all, Brasso, Wilman, B2, Bix, and one of Marva's friends managed to get in on one of the ricketyest ships I think we've ever seen in Star Wars, and, fucking mercifully, appear to get to safety. Luthen returns to his Fondor, and immediately we know something's amiss. But we also know why. Cashin's there. He's laid down his blaster. I've lost everything, he says. I've got nothing left. Either kill me or take me into the rebellion. It's all the same to me. That moment of pure relief, that moment of resuscitation, the sun rising in Luthen's previously sunless mind, we feel that relief too. We know that Cashin is finally on his way to where he's meant to be. And then the worst happens. Cut to Black, directed by Benjamin Karen. See you all in 2024. So something you said to me right at the end is kind of what's sticking with me. The way you phrase it as either kill me or take me into the rebellion, it's all the same to me. My mind immediately went to Kino Loy saying, I'm already a dead man. 
and it's now time to figure out what comes next. Uh, it's mm. kind of almost like an inversion of that line, but I think they very much mean the same thing. But yeah. God, man, oh man, this show is so fucking good. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know how <laughs> else to start uh, talking about this episode, but uh, everything that went into the previous 11 episodes feels like it really pays off here. Um, especially coming back to Ferrix after um, starting the story there. Um, it really does feel like a spiritual companion to episode three uh, when they initially broke out of um, Ferrix, uh, where uh, Luthen and yes. Andor rode off. Um, they... <laughs> you meant Revenge of the Sith. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it did not remind me at all of Revenge of the Sith, and that's a very positive thing from my point of view. Uh, but yeah, it's just like, it, it knew to bring it back home. And I think I want to start kind of with just talking about Marva's death um, mm. because that really is the thing that centers all this um, because coming out of episode 11, we heard a lot of people saying like, well, we didn't see her body or it's weird that um, they had her die off screen, um, mm -hmm. which in the conventional wisdom of 2022 is it's just one of those things where you don't do um, because then people will start writing articles like 11 secret theories where Marva is still alive or yeah. um, this whole idea that show don't tell is like a hard and fast rule um, mm -hmm. and not a guideline or anything like that. I think this show, especially specifically this episode showed what you can do when a character passes away um, and you're not there for it, whether it's the main character cast or whether it's us, the audience. Um, and it shows us what, how you can do something powerful with the fact that it was, you know, Brasso relaying her last words to Cassian. It was mm. B that's really projecting her last image. So in a way, B is part of her memory and giving light to that. Um, it's yeah. just really deft. And then to use that to retroactively also not like, have the scene where she's dying in her bed and then just kind of rolls over and dies, like in pretty much every scene, including like Yoda um, in Return of the Jedi. Instead, um, she gets to appear one last time as like the fierce, you know, rebel that she is um, and really become a rallying cry, like you say. Yeah. I And I think there's something really dignified. Like, you know, we, we see it. We, we see enough of Marva to know that she's sick. Um, and, you know, she's coughing and and obviously not well. Her breathing is weak, as Bic says. Um, but in that last kind of moment that we see her, she's still she's still all there and she's still Marva. And, you know, she's like, you know, Bix is trying to kind of mother her and take care of her. And Brasso comes in and and Marva is like very sardonically like, well, I guess I'm fucking dying. And and Brasso is like, well, yeah, you are fucking dying. And and, and Marva's like, well, whatever. That's, you know, dying is for <laughs> other people, not for me. I got shit to do. And and we know she's sick and Marva knows she's sick and everybody knows she's sick, but she's still like identifiably Marva. And I think there's something really dignified and 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 kind about not showing her last moments. Like, I don't need to see her death rattle to know what an old woman coughing mm -hmm. like that and being in the cold and refusing her medication means. And I don't need to see her dead body and see her death to, to, to know that death is there. But I also think there's something kind of like nicely unsettling about having not kind of had that finality of seeing her body because it's like, um, she she isn't like she is physically dead right but she's not really dead um and 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 like you say it's like the you know it's the hologram that lives on um as her kind of voice but but there is this you know her brick is still there her brick is still beating the shit out of cops <laughs> mm -hmm. um and and 
her like you know her physical being isn't there but there's something about her that lives on and i think using because you know we're all just kind of weird about seeing dead bodies and all and we kind of treat seeing a dead body as a kind of final moment not showing it means that that marva kind of in in spirit continues to live and to continues to thrive and it's not just her words but there is this sort of like narrative kind of um, not ambiguity, but kind of narrative freedom to it, um, because we don't have to see something as clinical as a, as a corpse and and kick our minds into sort of post enlightenment gear where we're like, oh well, you know, rigor mortis is setting in or whatever the fuck. We we mm-hmm. get to kind of have the spiritual connection to death that relies on sort of faith in the existence and reality of death and 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 faith and trust in the sort of existence of. Uh, a, a life after death, not in terms of like Casper, the friendly fucking ghost, but like uh, the ability of people to live on even after they have sort of severed their their ties to the mortal coil or whatever. Yeah, and I think that comes through really well with a very early flashback we get to Clem, uh, Cass's oh. father and Marva's uh, husband, because um, we see uh, Marva repeating some of the words in her last eulogy. I don't know what to call your last hologram that speaks after your death, uh, <laughs> your, your postmortem. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, like Clem is talking about cleaning these like metallic pieces or whatever they are, motherboards. Um, and he's talking about the rust that spreads from it, which is like the exact metaphor that Marva uses near the end of her uh, rallying cry. And it's also, there's a little bit of, you know, anti-capitalism in there where Clem is saying, like, they just want you to buy a new one of these every five months instead of just taking, like, five minutes to clean them. Yeah. <laughs> or two minutes. He says, two minutes, no more, no less. Um, but it's just, like, instead, they'd rather just have you, they'd rather make these cheaply and have you go buy a new one, uh, whereas you can pretty much u- reuse the same one uh, for a long time. Uh, so yeah. I really appreciated that. I really appreciated coming back to Clem one last time because um, they they really strike you as a family. Um, like and even mm-hmm. though Clem left a long time ago, you can see the mark that he's left on both Marva and Cassian. And now that Marva's leaving, we're seeing the mark that she's left through all the people of Ferrex, uh, not just Cass. Yeah, and, and I think that's kind of the thing, right? Like there there is this um, there's this great sense of community that um. Like, uh, like you know, it's it's it is the thing that you pointed out in right at the start of this with the the gloves and the walls uh, that you were later totally vindicated on because Tony Gilroy himself was like, well, don't forget in the early episodes we see the gloves on the walls and this is the key to understanding Ferrex and you had that nailed from the start. But like, it is that it is that there is a, a kind of deeper sense of community to Ferrex um, that isn't dependent on them all having come together before this because of a tragedy or them having all come together um because of uh, of some sort of like religion or or some sort of like cultural element it is is they have come together because these are people who are living um under the thumb of not just the 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 empire as the suppressive force but but under the sort of weight of of poverty you know what i mean these are not rich people um, we don't see them kicking about in villas, uh, hanging out in in silks and, um, you know, jasmine and doing whatever the fuck it is rich people do. I don't even know. Um, there is this sort of community that that is forged in the crucible of of just not having, um, and 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 the sense of you know we owe to Marva in her dying days what Marva gave to us in our living days, and we owe to uh, Salman Pak's son. Um, 
what he what he deserves as a, as a young person because these are the things that we were all deprived of and and I think it is this really it's really hard to talk about um you know I uh, we just had this big fire in Dundee um big old beautiful building burned uh in the, in the middle of the city center it was it was really something else you know we were coming down on the bus uh, sitting on the top of a double decker bus to to go to the pub one night um and saw the flames uh from the top of the double decker wow. bus and then we were standing in the city center and like as we were standing filming it in the city center like the literal ashes of this building were raining down on us like i had a whole i was picking Jesus. up a whole bunch in my pocket um, <laughs> it, it was a lot and um, it was a hundred year old building listed building and and we were kind of sitting in the pub going you know like we talk about Dun- dundee is kind of detroit but like this this could be arson uh this is probably arson because it was a building that the repairs to the building uh would probably have cost more than uh, just burning it and, and restarting. Um, and actually it ended up being something far more insidious, which is a whole bunch of teenagers, young teenagers, 12 and 13 year olds were charged with it. Uh, five, 12 and 13 year olds were charged with, um, burning this, this building, this, this massive, beautiful building. And, and there's something really deeply sad about it because if you think about when the pandemic started, these kids were nine, um, you know, nine and 10 years old and, and they've had like all sense of normalcy stripped out of their lives, not just by the pandemic, but by the fact that like Dundee is a city that has been hit very hard by the last 50 years. Uh, it's the drug death capital of the world, uh, huge rates of poverty. They keep shutting down schools because they'd rather send kids to prison than, uh, to college. Um, it, it, you know, it, these kids are kind of doomed were doomed from the start, fucked from the start. And obviously they have a right to innocence and, and they are kids. So I will assume that they were innocent anyways, uh, regardless of what the courts find. Um, but there is this sense of like, the world is under siege um, and children in particular are under siege. And we are all at one point or another children. And whether it's Cash and having these memories of his dad talking to him and being like, this is how you have to survive when you live the way that we live. Um, or it's, uh, you know, the kind of community Brasso coming together to get after Woman Pack throws that fucking pipe bomb into the crowd. And Brasso is like, I'm not letting this kid fall to the cops. I'm going <laughs> to grab his ass and we're going to get him to safety because he's a kid and because he's a kid who deserves better than this. And I think this show really just gets at this like feeling of we're all under siege right now. Um, we are all in in this kind of uh, state of nobody is really safe and and nobody really has anything to live for except for one another and except for taking care of one another and we have to take care of the people that are vulnerable even Bix who's been tortured out of her mind Cashin still goes to get her because you don't leave these people behind like Keto says leave no man behind and I think seeing all of this culminate in this show and in, in the the sort of season finale of the show under such grim circumstances and under circumstances where every single person there would have been justified in cutting and running by themselves. I think that is such a statement, such a good statement at such a kind of perfect moment for it. And and like the more I think about it, the kind of harder it is to, to talk about it because it just, I just want to cry. Like, I just want to cry. <laughs> yeah. Everything with uh, Salmon pa- Pack's kid. What was his name? Woman? Wilman. 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 Okay. Um, we can call him Woman Pack if we want to, though. Um, <laughs> No, like, it, it's insane to me that we got a thing where this kid makes a pipe bomb and there isn't, like, a heavy-handed, like, oh, that's too violent for this or, like, any kind of, mm-hmm. like, judging of the character, whether yeah. implicitly through how it's shot or through some character specifically admonishing him. Um, and it's not just that they don't go that route, but they go the opposite route and make it a moral imperative to protect him at all costs. 
Um, yes. That last barge of like Brasso and Bix and Wilman and B all surviving and going on with Jez <sighs> flying away. Um, that really got to me. It's like, yeah. these these are the people we're fighting for, the people who have been like crushed mentally like Bix have by the kid who's lost his parents because of the empire. Um, and like, you know, the strong working hands of Brasso, who's like the most absolute lad that's ever been an absolute lad in any kind of fictional narrative before. Because um, he, is, he is a rock in this episode in more ways than one. Like he is like, the rock in terms of his wrestling moves in the middle of the skirmish. Um, but then he's also like, of there are so many emotional moments in this episode. I don't want to like canonize them or try to rank them, but him repeating Marva's last words to Cass beforehand. Um, the, the line that you singled out is the one that I've been running through my head, like for the last 24 hours or whatever it's been. I love you more than anything you could ever do wrong. Uh, it's just incredibly powerful stuff. The whole stuff is like you you know what you need to know um, and you feel what you need to feel. When you're able to combine those two, you will be a force of unstoppable good. Um, like yeah. all of that stuff is just so deftly written. Um, and it's talking about who and or can be. But then it comes back to this, I love you more than anything you could ever do wrong, which mm. it's just beautiful. It's staggering. Um, and you can see this play across. I don't know Brasso's actor's name. Um, but he delivers it incredibly well. Um, the way that uh, Diego Luna like quietly intakes information, much like he's done all season, and just like a mm -hmm. star-studded, like career-defining performance. I know Diego Luna's had a very successful career up until this point, uh, but there's like no doubt that he he can lead whatever project you need him to lead because yeah, um, he he's just delivered, and uh, I can't gush enough about this scene. Well, and I think this is it is th the strength of the show is um it is written for the people they have. Like I like I I think this show is kind of dependent on Diego Luna being Diego Luna and not Cash and Andor being Cash and Andor. Mm. Like I, I I think a lot of the shows that we get now, um, you could kind of cast anyone in some of these characters, like for some of these characters. Um and and it wouldn't substantially change how the show is written. Whereas I think this is a show that feels like, um, you know, Cash and Andor was written for Diego Luna and it not that Diego Luna was cast to play Cash and Andor. And Kino Loy was written for Andy Serkis. Andy Serkis wasn't cast as Kino Loy. Like, mm -hmm, I think it's a mm -hmm. show that's very, very aware of the sort of strengths and abilities of of the actors it has at its disposal. Um, and I think um, the guy playing Brasso, I can't remember his name. I literally just looked it up the other day. He's got a great name as well. It's like a Star Wars ass sounded name. Um, like, he has this, like, working class kind of bonafide as, like, he's, he's like the cool dad, but he's, but he, we, we don't even, like, have the... I don't know. I feel like we kind of treat men in particular, men of a certain age, as like only capable of showing empathy or care for, for other people if they have a kid, um, usually if they have a daughter. Um, but we don't see that Brasso has like other family. <laughs> like Brasso's just fucking there and he's just fucking rock solid for no other reason. And 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 the reason that we are able to kind of buy that is because the actor brings that like that kind of feeling of like he is the man who 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 really is looking out for everyone um to that and in the same way that like um 
having Stellan Skarsgård as as Luthen sit there and and you kind of can't tell like if he's fully good, if he's fully bad, even if it doesn't matter. But then watching him break over Marva, like that is a moment that works because Stellan Skarsgård is who he is and not because Luthen is like as a figure in the lore or whatever who Luthen is. And and I think like you know, we've had this in this episode, this convergence of all the different plot lines. Every single character we've ever seen in this show is now on Ferrix. And it doesn't feel hokey or bad because it feels like this is you're watching all of these actors, these characters really kind of punch it up to what they are meant to be doing in this moment because of who they are and and who they are is informed by what the actors are capable of doing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they used, uh, I looked up the actor who plays Brasso. It's Joplin Sibtain, uh, which yeah, you're correctly, name. you are totally right. That is a very Star Wars name. Um, <laughs> but he is as much a visual anchor for Marva's uh, eulogy as much as anyone. Like, you know, he hasn't been in the show as much as, say, Luthen has, but they're cutting us more to Joplin's face than they are to Stalin's yeah. face during that. Um, We're seeing the emotions work their way through him more so than basically anyone else. Uh, him and Zanwan, uh, I think his name, who is the oh, radio yes. guy that Cass called. Um, and just to like reiterate that Brasso's the fucking dude, as soon as you know Zan probably got off the mic with Cass, he went to talk to Brasso about it. Like they, yeah. they, they know what they're about. They know that Brasso is the guy to go talk to about this stuff, uh, which just centers him again. And the fact that they could put so much of the emotion of this episode on this, I would call him secondary, maybe even tertiary character to an extent. Yeah. Um, the fact that we didn't have to look up his the actor's name until the 12th episode, I don't want to use that as like a hard <laughs> guideline, but um, that yeah. tells you we haven't been like necessarily extolling his virtues, even though he's been solid all series. Um, but yeah. the fact that he can play such a major role... The fact that Wilman Pock could play such a major role Ugh. after I didn't know his name, even like doing this episode, like you pulled yep. it in your recap. Um, but the fact that he could be there throughout the episode, he's literally the first thing we see. And I'm still like totally invested in him um, in part because of how they built everything around him, how they built the culture of Ferrix. So I could already just make assumptions about the people of Ferrix from that. Um, and then also knowing the specific people in his like immediate orbit, whether it's his father, whether it's Bix, whether it's Brasso, um, just the amount of character building they're able to do and not necessarily have to sit there where a character has to explain to you what they want or what they're trying to do. Um, it's just fantastic. Yeah. And, and I think there's like one of the reasons why this kind of works and why we like don't necessarily need to know like the details of these characters for the story to succeed as much as it does is because this is a story that is ruthlessly, um, like anathema to like standoffs or one-on-ones cash and andor who is allegedly the like protagonist of this show and um, has not had a single standoff with any of the imperials who are chasing him like he's been near karn but that wasn't a standoff like that was karn getting mm -hmm. his ass handed to him and then cash and being weak um there was no like dedra facing down uh cash in this episode at all there was no moment of like you know the ben kenobi darth vader duel in a new hope we haven't had any of that and the show is actively constantly persistently against doing that and so it means that all of these other sort of ter secondary tertiary characters have to mean as much as the primary characters because they are every bit as much of the movers and shakers of this story mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. cash and andor is and routinely are more important kind of cogs in the machine of the narrative machine of this story than than cash is um and so we have to like be 
at the point where, you know, we have a really strong sense of who these characters are, even without needing to be told it, because otherwise that kind of non-confrontational storytelling just wouldn't be as successful. We would just kind of always be waiting for the next chance for Ben Kenobi and Vader or Cashin and Dedra to kind of face off. Um, and and the show doesn't want to give us it. And so it's had to work much harder to do it. But but the the kind of overall outcome of, of having to actually put the work in to build out a, like a significant cast means that you get these episodes. I mean, I cried. I cried my ass through the whole fucking episode. I just sobbed. Um, and and it's it's hard to kind of do that in a way that doesn't feel like, oh, I'm a dipshit because because you have to have that kind of strength throughout the entire company. And they've really done that. They've really cultivated it. But then they've also just really cultivated a sense of like narrative purpose in a way that like even when they do jump into kind of not tropey, but like potentially kind of campy things like Nemec's manifesto, which they we finally got our read of in this episode. Um, it doesn't feel out of place and it doesn't feel hokey or like they're just giving the audience what they want. It, it just feels like it's part of a necessary part of the story working. Uh, we can't talk this much about Marva and Brasso and the funeral without talking about the marching band, which somehow, yes. like you, like you're speaking of, just like somehow feels natural here. Even though if you told me that there was going to be a marching band in Andor, I would have thought that yeah. would be rad. Uh, but it's just like, <laughs> what? Uh, what yeah. exactly are you getting at? Um, marching bandor? Is that anything? I don't know. Uh, well done. But. Ah, it's so great. Um, like these, the people, the musicians and the people who are in the procession proper are in these bright colors, um, very notably orange. So we once again, like the prison, have that orange and white motif of the rebellion. Um, yeah. But also just like the bold colors also made me think a little bit of like, say, revolutionaries and mm-hmm. what I, I mostly know the American Revolution and I know how at least Hollywood wants me to picture those soldiers. I've seen Roland Emmerich's The Patriot. Um, so I know how <laughs> yeah, things go. Yeah. Um, or I imagine maybe something similar in France. I'm not yet to that episode in the Revolutions podcast, but I assume <laughs> they had some uh, fancy clothes. Uh, it's, I don't know. And there's just also something lively about it. The like two different tones to the marching band procession, like the sad dirge that kind of starts it. And then the little more upbeat March that follows. Mm. It reminds me of like a new Orleans funeral, which again, I only know from the James Bond movie, live and let die um, (laughs) where they kill people, where the person who's in the funeral is a person they killed during the funeral. It's great. Uh, But anyways, like, there's just like so many cultural and political things I can read into this um, on top of the fact that they fucking glued some piccolos to a flute and it looks so cool. So um, good. This, I, just everything about this scene is just or this like specific set piece is conceived brilliantly. Yeah. And, and I think it also does something really interesting, right? Because I, I was reading this interview with um, Nicholas Brittle, the the composer for the series, um, and he was talking about the the song Niamos, which is that bang and fucking house club tune uh, that we get on Niamos and then uh, recurs uh, throughout the series. You also we also hear it at the very start uh, in the brothel in episode one, and 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 he said that that was actually the first bit of uh, music he wrote. And and he wrote it by asking the question like what would it sound like if there was a, a a you know a chart topper in Star Wars and everyone was hearing it all across the galaxy but it it had to but like what would that music 
um, morph into contextually based off of the kind of different um, environments and and uh, you know story points that all of these characters were hearing when they were actually hearing it. And so he he wrote this club theme, which is the uh, Niamos song, the song Niamos, um, and then altered it by adding strings or by adding more brass or 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 by you know making it diegetic at points or non diegetic at other points. Um, and there's this really sound, like clear and, and strong and important sense of music being integral to the world. Um, is you know the, the the they built this sonic landscape as if it is a, truly a real real thing, a real a real part of uh, 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 of the world, as if Star Wars itself is real and and the the galaxy the GT forty the galaxy top forty is an actual thing, and Niamos as a song is at the top of it. Um, and so there's this very sort of ground up approach to to music in the score, and I think kind of topping it off with we've had the Niamos club mix as sort of you know diagnostic playing through speakers at various points and then not diegetically playing through speakers at other points and being woven into the various stories to now finally having music that is literally being played by the people in in the uh in the story and and it is tied and edited in so perfectly that it is also acting as a score for us as the viewers and really brings us into it um, by being both diegetic and also excellent scoring and by doing the kind of ballsy move of having something that sounds like amateur musicians playing at this massive climactic point of your story. Like, like it, it, it takes balls to do that because Star Wars as an entity is John Williams, you know, it's 50% John Williams, 50% everything else. And, and John Williams, you know, um, in, in, um, in, in a new hope, um, there's, uh, you get the bump, but, uh, you get the 20th century Fox theme, which was the original one that George Lucas pulled out of the, the archives. Um, and then you get, duh, duh. And it's that, I think it's like a high A um, and, and it's a trumpet solo. Um, and, uh, the guy who played it for the, the London Symphony Orchestra, I think it was, uh, that was his first day on the job. <laughs> and that was his first solo note. And the high A is quite hard to hit on trumpet. High notes generally are paid in the dick. And that man had to hit it perfectly. And of course he hit it perfectly and hit it beautifully. And it's one of the most iconic notes of all time. But that is the level of ball that we are playing with music in Star Wars. Like, People who are at the absolute top of the top of the top of their game, knocking it out of the, the park with almost supernatural ability, supernatural talent. And and that is the Star Wars we all know and love. And for this show to be like, throw that out. We're going to have a fucking local marching band play and they're going to play like their high schoolers. And that's going to be the soundtrack for the, the, the peak moment of our story. That's really confident. It's really confident. And of course, it works beautifully. And it says so much about how these guys are thinking about the show and what they are trying to do politically and narratively. But it's also just it's it's a big dick move and it paid off in spades. Yeah. Uh, in retrospect, I'm pretty sure they called their shot in the opening title card. Um, because as we've been noting changes through that little opening riff that they start every episode with, this is the first one I like recognized horns actually in it, um, which kind of like acts as an overture almost to that marching band scene. Uh, nice. Previously, everything was mostly synth. or And I think near the end of the Narkina plot line, they started introducing some strings. But they did horns this time, and they added some reverb to it, uh, which mm. almost made it sound like it had a choral element of it, like people actually singing or humming or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, it was really fantastic. And I liked how they used the music to kind of build tension, like first that like opening dirge, which is kind of slower and more mournful. Um, so it really situates in it, but it's like 
cutting between, say, Cinta, like, in the crowd and Corv, like, in front of her a little bit, or uh, Wilman Pock, like, finally leaving his house with his bomb in his bag and uh, trying to blend in. Like, they do such a great job of, like, using that first part to build tension. And then when Brasso comes forward with the brick um, and then everyone kind of lines up and the two groups kind of meet in front of the time grapplers tower. I don't know if we have a more official name for that. Um, And then they begin the March, which has like a higher, you know, it's a quicker pace. It's, you know, the rhythm is a lot faster and then you can really feel it. It's almost like a ticking bomb, say like uh, Pox. It's like, you know, something's going to go off and the soundtrack is really working with the visuals. There's this great sweeping. I want to call it a helicopter shot because I don't know how they do it otherwise of like the Imperials lining up at one end of Rick's road and just this big sweeping shot to the crowds that are marching towards them that are quite a ways down the other end of Rick's road. Um, It's just magnificent storytelling using the visuals and the music to ratchet up the tension until things literally explode. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think there's this, um, God, there's so much in this episode. I've just reminded myself as well of the and my recap. I didn't even bother talking about Mon Mothma. And there's a whole thing about the music there as well that, that I find really interesting with like Parrot and getting his ass dragged out of a nightclub, which we'll have to deal with at some point. But but one of the things that I think is, is so impressive about this and that helicopter shot that you're talking about is they built out that whole set, right? They have like an absurd amount of space, like a trillion acre fucking set that they built out. And they built out all of it. Um, and it's a real cityscape. Um and and because of that, because they took the time and, you know, potentially the cost to build out that full set, that full city set, they are able to do things that are ballsier and, and kind of more visually interesting um, because they don't have to worry about the camera in, in the same way. So, like, as we're following the kind of two different groups of marchers as they're coming down the camera can go all over the place and really move and and get the sense of like the camera itself is weaving us as the audience like into this landscape um and we don't see the seams and it is the you know it's the thing i always talk about this i'm sick of hearing myself say this but you know one of the set designers one of the production designers on the original star wars said the reason star wars works so well is because we built the sets to be 270 degrees instead of 180 so it feels like at any moment the camera could swing around and you would still see uh the whole mm-hmm. world of star wars the entire dust star surrounding you the the all of uh tatooine surrounding you it just feels like it's more and and they've gone this show has gone as of course one step further and has built 360 degrees and so it's not that we feel like it could swing around the camera could swing around and we would still see the world the camera actively is swinging around and we are seeing the whole world around it and when they're tying it into something like music and music played my amateurs uh and you know seeing people who just look like people you know they don't look like models uh they don't look like they're you know they were picked for um you know the their sort of cameo value or the fact they, that they would benefit like you know boost seo or you know go viral on tiktok or twitter or whatever these are just fucking people they're just dudes um and 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 all of that kind of combines to make this feel very real which makes the narrative power of what's going on the 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 imps 
being like, we are going to go in hard to send a message on a fucking dead woman's funeral. Like it makes that feel so much worse. And and it also makes the rebellion that much cooler because we get the sense that these guys have no chance. They have no chance. They're not going to win. They're not going to succeed. There's no way they're going to do it. Um, and the imps are pathetic little fascists and they look like pathetic little fascists. The, um, the empire in this show for the first time in Star Wars' history doesn't look cool. They look fucking pathetic. And the rebels look cool as shit. They've never looked cooler. The rebellion has genuinely never looked cooler. Um, and I won't argue with anyone about this because I'm fucking right. This is the rebellion at its coolest and the Imperials at their shittiest and most losery. Um, and all of this works because they've done the work of building out the foundation on everything else, on the music, on the set, on the costumes, on the lighting, on everything. That's all in place. And so we get this sense of focusing in on what really matters here. Uh, and, you know, like, you know, sorry to the cosplayers who I'm who always do phenomenal work on on the imperial stuff always 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 but like it does now mean that the empire in like when these cosplayers are gonna have to do the empire stuff there is going to be a bit of like oh i i am dressing up as a guy who is about to throw a bucket full of grenades at a whole bunch of unarmed uh mourners that's a bit more icky than just like tarkin who's cool as shit yeah, absolutely. Like anytime they cut to Tigo and as he's try he's like realizing that th this shit's all going to go bad really quickly. Like just him like saying open fire, fire at will. Um I just literally wanted to wrangle his neck as soon as like yeah. he, the camera would cut to him. Um it's great. And this is also uh not to keep throwing this grenade on the fire, but like <laughs> this is kind of the value on just focusing on the human stories in Star Wars. Yeah. Like, they could have had an alien or two out there. Maybe Vetch, who was in the very first episode or whatever, was somewhere <laughs> in there. But it's like, this is great. This is why I like being able to cut to everyone's face and see, like, a performance. Even Nurchi, the guy who narked on Cass, like, I liked see like cutting to him mm -hmm. and seeing, it, like, him, like, being like, oh, did I make the right decision? Oh, shit. And then he dies. Yep. Um, like, yep. I like seeing Zanwan or Zanwan. I like cutting to bra like the fact that all these people have faces and names that I recognize Pelga or uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Pelga. Pegla. Uh, Pegla, that's it. I, I knew I had it. It's weird to say I know all these guys' names and then completely butcher his name. But. No, no, but that but that is the thing, right? Like, I'm also, I have a terrible recall for names in real life as well. So, like, I'm, I'm nailing these characters' names at about the same rate that I get people's names in real life, which is, I think, a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't tell you half the people in Boba Fett. Um, yeah. <laughs> what were the names of the pigs? Did they have names? I don't even know. Um <laughs> Oh God, there's so I like, I feel like we barely talked about the episode, but there's still so much to talk about just here in the funeral. Um, all right. We got a pair of love stories of sorts. I'm not calling them just like out and out romances. Um, let's start with, uh, let's say Bix and Cassian. Um, and I, oh. I don't actually mean a love story, but it is a very lovely scene that there's yeah. no hesitation in Cass. Like, um, as our friend Matt was calling it last night in our group chat, he's just a fucking hero about all this, yeah. like affectionate. Yeah. Um, he is like, wait, wait, they got Bix where? What's happening to her? Well, we got to go get her. Um, so much so that he's willing to let uh, Brasso kind of be the center, like human of the funeral procession itself so that he can go get Bix when um, obviously yeah. he can't be publicly in the ceremony because everyone there is there to kill him. Um, so there's obvious reasons, but he's not like, well, no, I need to be there or something like that. He's like, I got to take care of Bix. That's probably what Marva would want more than anything yeah. is to save her. Um, so I really love that there's no hesitation in him. And then the scene where they actually reunite is just heartbreaking, but also incredible. Yeah. And and that's I think there's something really remarkable about about this because, you know, 
it is it is a romance like there is a romance there 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 is a romantic love there um there's possible very possibly very probably no future for that romantic love but but that love is still there and and um you know Cashin going in to, to rescue her it doesn't feel like Errol Flynn a sort of Errol Flynn moment it feels more like Marva making sure not to leave baby Casa on Canary um it, it is more this moment of these are the people that we love um and and we you know we save what we love um and and um Cashin is learning the lesson of you know what Marva was saying to come uh in, I think like episode two or three like everything is fucked here and there's no point leaving people behind even if things are going to get harder for for the these people that I save and um, it is better to just save them because that is what we have to do for one another um than to leave people behind to certain doom um and, and Cashin's really taking up that that mantle that that mantle of Marva's and you know Bix isn't aware Bix isn't aware. And I think that's the kind of tragedy because she says when he walks in, she's like, I had a dream that you came back um, and she's not aware. Um, and and her like last line, which is just heartbreaking, is her being like, Cashin will find us. He'll find us. And Cashin has to stand there and be like, yeah, I'll find you. And he's not. There's no way. He's never going to see those guys again. But there's just this like, you know, love is this really incredibly powerful motivating factor. I mean, it doesn't have to be a romantic love, but but things that were once a romantic love can can kind of morph and transform into something that remains as a love, but it's a, it's the sort of love that you have for a, a comrade and, and you don't let that go. Um, and you don't let people die just because uh, they won't fuck you anymore. And I think the show is really having that kind of, that, that the show is, is really flexing for, for showing that in such a clear and, and perfect way like this. Yeah, that's, that's really beautifully said. Um, I, I feel like they kind of got in the plot armor ship and we will see them again at some point, um, maybe briefly in season two. But I think you have the right of it in terms of the analysis there. Um, and it's it's really beautiful because I think this episode did a really good job of never forgetting about Bix at all. Like yeah. they are showing her right from the get go in her cell when she's just completely like destitute of mind but then later as the funeral music uh gets going she starts humming along um she really like vibes to marva's words to the point that when cash shows up she's like uh marva was here and then cash just smiles at her and says she was great wasn't she or whatever it was um, oh it's so awful it's, it's heartbreaking <laughs> and her whole thing is like i dreamed you come and save me it's like that is something you might see and say like a chivalristic knight saves the princess kind of story. Like, oh, I dreamed you'd save me. You know, thank you, some knight from some story that I can't think of right now. Yeah. Um, Shrek, but, actually. <laughs> yeah, Shrek. There you go. Um, Cassian is Shrek. Uh, I like. I like. I like where this is going. <laughs> yeah. But it. But it's just like it's. It's both heartbreaking and but just like really beautiful. Um, and. You know, it takes Cass a second to get her to go because she's at first like, no, this might be some trick or they'll get mad at me if I leave. Um, but in the end, he's able to like grab her and get her to safety. Um, I just loved everything about it. Um, and I really hope we do see a little bit more of Bix because she's been tremendous and she is the hottest character that's ever been in a Star yes. War. Um, so Correct. I would very, very much welcome her return. 
Well, and I think one of the things that was really sort of taken me for a whole ride in that 30 second scene is and when he's like down on his knees being like, come on, Bix, we got to go. We got to go. Come on. We got to leave. It's exactly the lines that he says to Jin after Jin uh, sees and loses the hollow of Galen and, and, and saw his hideout on Jetta. And, and that to me, like. Uh, five, seven, however many years ago when uh, it was right in between there. It's six years ago when um, Rogue One came out. Um, that scene where where Kajin breaks out of the prison cell on Jeddah and, and goes running after Jin um, to get Jin. And he is like, he sees Jin on the ground crying and is like, come on, Jin, we got to go. You can't die here. Like, not just because you've got the intelligence, but there is a very human element of, come on, we got to go. Like, you you need to continue living. That was like the moment for me when I was like, these two characters are like, I these are my ride or dies now. Like, I, I, I have never loved a scene in Star Wars. Well, binary sunsets, but then this uh, was really, for me, this is like that whole sense of, you know, we really do have to defend these people and we have to do it in a really human way and we have to like let people know that we are are still there for them. And and to have that kind of parallel in in such a vastly more heartbreaking way because Bix can't really respond. And she's not, she doesn't have the presence of mind. Um, She's been beaten into submission in in such a horrific way by the Empire. She can't respond. And then for, for Cashin to go through this again, where he's on his knees is being like, come on, we got to go. We have to get out of here. And Jen having this ability, this sort of last kind of ditch hope to kind of go and survive and get out and and kind of go do that thing. There is neither neither woman is lessened or strengthened for one response over the other, but there is a nice sort of parallel in that like the first time it may end badly and the second time it doesn't have to, even if it ultimately does end badly. Um, there is this th- this sort of, oh, what's the dumbass George Lucas thing? It's like pottery. It rhymes. Uh, this, this shit rhymes. It's a fucking Greek vase. It rhymes perfectly. Um, and, and, I, and I like that. And I like that it doesn't create a hierarchy between um, Bix and between um, Jin, but it creates that kind of echo through time. Yeah, speaking of echoes or rhyming couplets or something like that, um, the other (laughs) big romance here, of course, we mean Dedra and Cyril. um, Because um, our boy Cyril finally gets his big moment. Uh, Jesus Christ. uh, Everything goes to shit during the funeral and, you know, the imps just start opening fire recklessly on the people of Ferex. Um, Dedra tries to, you know, be Han Solo herself. Uh, She whips out her blaster and gets in the crowd. I don't even think she actually gets a shot off. Like, I think she no. pulls out her gun and then someone knocks it out of her hand. And then in minutes, she's on the floor. Um, and she's then pathetic. She, yeah, she, she she does not belong out there at all. Um, as much no. as she thinks she's the hardest one out there, perhaps. Um, as soon as this stuff goes wild, she's just another noble who needs her head cut off, more or less. Yep. Um, yeah. And... What happens is Cyril's able to pick up her gun and then kind of grabs her from behind like he's part of the angry mob that's like leading her into some dark corner for who knows what. Um, And then it's like, oh, shit, it's you. It's like, yes, I'm Cyril. It's like, no, I I know who you are. (laughs) Um, But it, it... I, I have not been on TikTok since the finale, but I cannot wait to see the fan cams that people are making of Dedra and Cyril because uh, this was this was one for the books. This was um, uh, like you could almost see Dedra's like, fuck, I got to be in love with this guy now. But also like, yeah. shit, <laughs> shit, like he actually did save me here and stuff. It's just it's beautiful. Yeah. Well, it's it's one of them. Like, I hate it. I, in that moment, I was sitting there going, I thought she was going to fuck Anton Lesser's character. Anton Lesser's character. I like that was my kind of I'm 
barf bag at the ready. This is going to be where we're going with this. And somehow this show found a way to make it even worse. And it's the most like sexually charged scene of the whole show. Mm -hmm. And they're standing there in that little filing cabinet looking at one another. And I am like, I spent the whole time looking at a window because I was watching this in a two story house. And I was like, if I jump out of there head first, I can theoretically rid myself of the memory of this scene. And it would be great. And it's so unhinged and says so much about who these characters are and what the empire is like and what this alienation and isolation and total like degradation of humanity does to these people. And it also takes Dedra from having been this sort of girl boss, like, okay, she's a girl boss, like she's a, she's a bad girl boss, but she's still a girl boss. She's still totally in control to being what she actually is, which is a pathetic little fascist freak. Uh, and when push comes to shove, she has no spine and she's an embarrassment um, and there's nothing good or, or redeemable about her. Um, and the fact that she is like having this moment with Cyril Karn, the world's most pathetic man, like fucking Elmer glues fodder, if I've ever seen it, like underscores how pathetic she is and 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 the balls of the show to be like this is how we're going to handle this and we are going to end this season with making sure that everybody here knows that these two people are just fucking horrific is so good like it's so it's exactly what it needed oh no i i think you got that exactly right because i could see a lesser story is like well cyril has to do something to prove that he's as good as dedra and instead, yeah. it's a Dedra falling and like revealing to be just as pathetic as Cyril. Um, yeah, and like yes. that is the exact perfect way to deal with fascists. Um, that's the exact way how you're able to cr- create this Dedra character who, when you situate her in the ISB, everything around her is an opponent, and we have sympathy with her against her specific opponents. But then when you unleash her on the rest of the narrative, she goes from this horrific like Abu Ghraib style torturer. Um, and then she just thinks she's this mastermind. And then in the very end, she's just brought down to be just a pathetic little worm. Um, and it's so satisfying. And it's so satisfying in the, in everything they've done with Cyril Karn and making him a pathetic worm throughout. And now he's able to be like, yeah, she's just like me for real. Like we're both pathetic worms, <laughs> oh, like crawling God, in Jesus the dirt. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's beautiful. It's a great way to kind of pay off like some real like, uh, what's it called? She, uh, Dedra Denise Gao or Goff. She's like legitimately like trembling after that scene. Yeah. And I just think of Han Solo and Empire Strikes Back telling Leia oh, that no. she's trembling. Oh, God. It's like the exact opposite, like the exact opposite vibes. It's still completely oh, enjoyable God. to me, but it just, the vibes are so off in a way that are just so perfect. I love every second of it. Um, God, it's oh, so good. Oh, God. It's nauseating. See, like, I, I'm one of these people who. Unfortunately, hand to God, I, I was an Amarillo. Uh, I love the whole gothic romance shit. Uh, so I'm not opposed to a good little bit of villain shipping. But I think this this show treats that kind of approach with exactly the contempt it deserves, which is like these these are pathetic, pathetic, disgusting, disgraceful excuses of human beings on like the most kind and benevolent thing anybody could do for these characters is to shoot them in the head. Um, and if they find love and romance with one another, that's not a good thing. And just the act of love itself or the act of, of sort of the the performance of romance um, does not vindicate or justify or or uh 
save people, redeem people. Um, they can be in love with one another and, you know, they're still going to be like fucking dipshit Ava Braun and dipshit Adolf Hitler. Um, Deidre there, of course, being Hitler because uh, she's the competent one of the two. Um, and and that is still a thing that you should treat with contempt and, and the ability to love does not make someone a good, a good being. Um, and I like that approach because I think a lot of a lot of sort of well it's the harry potter approach right where like bad guys can't love um and, and bad guy bad guys can't feel emotion for one another but like karn is definitely in love with dedra and he's still a bad guy <laughs> like he's still a bad guy he's still a fucking nazi um and i think i like that this show is undermining that by being like these freaks can still love one another but yeah they're all going to the fucking hague um speaking of freaks that love one another uh, i also want to talk about vel and Sinta. Um, because <laughs> yeah. there, there's a lot to talk about here. Um, I want to talk about something very specific, uh, something we've kind of talked about on this podcast before, about how everything out of most major IP factories these days are about like found family or trauma specifically. Yeah. Like everything's about trauma. You go read a review of the last 12 Marvel movies or probably the last six fa uh, Fast and Furious movies or whatever. Um, you'll see it's about trauma and it's almost always about trauma in the same way. It's basically like the inside out um, story. It's like, it's okay to mm. feel sad. Um, that's yes. usually the sum total of what any of these uh, big blockbusters say about trauma. Um, and it came up as like, well, Sinta clearly has trauma. We learned early on that her family was killed by a bunch of stormtroopers. And as a result, we see like the most hard ass character that's possibly ever been in Star Wars. Um, and it's not like this show is sitting down and telling us, oh, she's going through trauma and this is how she's dealing with it or any of that stuff. It just informs what the character is and what she decides to do. It's in a strict political context. Like, who caused the trauma? Why? What are we doing about that thing? Um, it's not like bad things happen to me and I'm just grappling with the emotion of it, but I'm actually grappling with like the cause, the effect, um, all of that stuff. And then it just, it creates a much realer examination of trauma without necessarily foregrounding it in a way where you have to have a character telling you what is love but grief persevering or the other way around uh, what is grief <laughs> but love persevering uh, <sighs> which is stuff that I find my you know mildly okay to good at various points it's not like there's no value in those stories but it's just because everything it's not just that everything is assembly line in terms of production in terms of VFX but it's also assembly line thematically where it feels yeah. like any number, I could throw a dart at any movie in the last seven years, and that chances that are it's about found family or trauma yeah. um, are like probably above fifty percent, uh, yes. or at least in terms of major, you know, tentpole releases. Like that's almost undoubtedly yeah. what it's about. Yeah, like I'm gonna plant my flag in this on this thing right here right now. Found family is baby shit for babies. Yes, I fucking yes, hate it as a trope. Yes, it yes. sucks. Like, I, like I, I think that the reason I'm really clicking with this show and really loving this show so much is because it makes the very important and good argument that you don't need to like people at all to be on their side. Like. Kino, when push comes to shove, was still a fucking cunt. And he was on the right side, which is why he deserved to live. And and all of these people in Ferrex don't have to be pals with one another. And they don't have to be like sisters or like brothers or like mm -hmm. fathers or whatever to one another. To all be on the same side and to all be fighting for the same thing. Luthen has rancid vibes. And I know this actually puts me in a in a minority. Um, but like Luthen has rancid vibes, and I don't trust him as far as I can throw him, but he's 
still on the right side and still deserving of a better world than the one that he is getting. And I think the Bell and Sinta plot in particular is really good because rather than trying to iron out the difficulties of all coming together as a family, it is it is it is handling the the kind of incongruities of of forging love and and you know being in love or having some sort of affection for people at, at a moment when love and affection isn't the most helpful thing which is not to say that you know it's not a good thing or not a human thing or, or an in, uh, an intensely important thing to be in love or to have a, a sort of sense of human connection um but sometimes it does get in the way um and sometimes there is value to saying um well, the struggle comes first and we take what's left. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of people are like, okay, fine. Uh, Sinta's in the wrong here. I think Sinta's in the right. And I think Vel needs to get off her high fucking horse about it because like, what are you going to do? Be in love while the world burns? Like, no, that's a dipshit individualistic response to it. And like Vel, take off your little rich girl shit, go deal with it somewhere else. Sinta's right on this. And I like that the show privileges that kind of narrative. Um, no doubt Santa is definitely dramatized by the world around her, but like that trauma isn't going to go away while the, while the world still sucks. Um, and her approach to that, I think, is actually a totally valid one. And it helps to kind of get rid of this bullshit fam, family baby brain nonsense um, by pointing out that there are alternate ways to be right and to be good and to maintain human connection that aren't just, well, uh, Ben Kenobi is my father now. Yeah, I love it. I also love Sinta just fucking knifing Corv. Like, oh. uh, it was so satisfying just based on the grunting and shiving noises. Like, they don't have to show yes. you the knife. Um, God, it's so good. Everything they've done with Vel and Sinta is so good. Uh, even though uh, I don't love Vel as much as I did a couple episodes ago. Just because yeah. she's kind of more just she's kind of a pill. Uh, not like I dislike her per se. Um, yeah, but she gets she gets. Well, she's just a rich girl. Like yeah. she's just a deadweight. The rich kids are not helpful. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. It, uh, it's just great, and I love how Sinta's just like, I, I have no time for this. This is what we're doing. I'm bought in. I'm all in. Um, yeah, and I think you see some of that with uh, Vel and Luthen too, because they have a quick chat. Because um, for a second there, when Luthen says he's there to kill Cass, I almost thought Vel was gonna like say something in Cass's defense, but then she just holds it um like the camera lingers on her a second like she has an opportunity to say something and then she just doesn't um I, I i don't really have a like a take on that but i just think it's just really well characterized like the complexity of it and what's going on uh, between all these characters heads is just so fucking good um, yeah yeah god uh what I, so yeah go, go. <laughs> no you, you lead it because i didn't know where to take it from here well so okay so i I've been trying to avoid talking about this because I think like once we kick it open, it's going to be a difficult thing to put back in the box. Um, Mon Mothma. Mon Mothma and Perrin, I can't remember his actual last name. It's not Mothma. Perrin Farron. Perrin <laughs> Um He, so, okay. So, so we cut briefly to Coruscant and Mon is like, get in the car, Perrin. Uh, and we catch up with Perrin outside of a club uh, and, and a club is play the club is playing a cool, like Niamos inspired kind of tune. Uh, and Perrin, uh, hang dog look, gets in the car. Um, and Mon is, all but before that, Mon is like sitting in the car, having a hot flash, uh, rips open the trench coat and it's like Genevieve O'Reilly at her most beautiful. I was like hot and bothered watching it. Um, but then her shithead useless husband gets in the car. Now, they have a conversation that reads like angry wife 
ball and chaining it boomer style being like how dare you have fun uh on me and uh by having a gambling addiction you said that you would not bring your gambling addiction to coruscant you would only do it on canto bite uh and perrin looking aghast because he's like this is definitely not what's actually happening here here's my question do we think that mon was self-aware enough to actively be pegging uh, Perrin with the gambling thing as a way of getting out of uh, the 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 kind of financial problem that she's in, or did she actually think <laughs> that Perrin was gambling uh, and was just mad about it? And it was only incidentally that that ended up working for her, which is why she's still going ahead with that arranged marriage shit at the end. God, I think I feel like I know where you're going <laughs> to answer this. Um, but I am going to be charitable here. I think that was Mon Mothma's plan. Um, I think the fact that she in a previous episode has Chloris noted as, uh, I was going to call it IBS. What is it? ISB as an ISB, <laughs> ISB. plant. Um, I think the fact that she had that noted, um, and the fact that that was exactly what's reported to, um, Blevins, I believe it was, or Blevins, sorry, um, back at the ISB. Um, it feels deliberate. It feels like the way the show showed it to me. Uh, was deliberate in her doing that. Um, yeah. I've also heard people saying, um, I wonder if Perrin's in on it. And for that, I would say no. Um, I do not think Perrin would be in on it at all. In part, just because I think the reaction is far more natural if Perrin actually thinks he's being accused of it and it goes over better for Chloris. Um, I like if Perrin, I don't give Perrin enough credit to be able to act his way convincingly to do it. Um, no. So I think... I think it also makes sense because I bet you Perrin and Mon also just like have these little bitchy arguments in the in the car a lot. Um, yeah. So it just like feels like another one. But uh, please tell me why Mon Mothma was not savvy enough to do this intentionally. I I think the the fact that we see her at the end with giving away a uh, little dipshit Lita to oh my god the son the son who looks about 10 years old oh god oh i was not expecting that kid to turn around and for him to actually be like literally yeah, a 10 year old same 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 I, oh, 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 there's a lot there um i think the fact that she ends up going through with that in the end makes me think that she like i i i think i trust that she was like setting that up um as being like this is a kind of contingency plan we'll pin it all in parent um but I don't think, no, I, you know what? I don't even know. I wonder if the like gambling thing was her way of getting Perrin out of Coruscant being like, you're gambling too much on Coruscant. I told you to go to Canto Bite, but don't bring it to Coruscant. I wonder if that's her being like, I'm getting ready to send Perrin away. And at least the ISB will understand why I've sent Perrin away. Mm. And then the ISB took it as that's why her finances are all fucked. Um, and Mon, having not realized that that's how that obviously would have telegraphed, was still like, okay, and now I'm going to cry as I give away my daughter <laughs> to get married at age 14. <laughs> I just don't trust that she's smart enough to have played that correctly. And I think she's also slightly more concerned with like getting him, Perrin, out of the way so she can go coochie-coo with uh, Mr. Silver Fox uh, Banker, whose name I can never remember. Take Horma. Take Horma. Korma. Korma. Uh, chicken Not korma Korma is a great dish, yeah. but uh, <laughs> no, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, anyone to the right of Saw Gerrera, you give absolutely no credit whatsoever. Yes. Um, so Saw that, is the only one with clarity of purpose. There you go. There you go. Um, yeah. Um, 
I, I'll just say that isn't my read, but I can see the validity <laughs> in that. Because um, that's really the only scene we get with Mon, that, and then just the later, the presentation of the boy, um, who sadly was not one of our, you know, immaculate fan casts from a couple episodes ago. <laughs> um, we also did see Davo Skulden's wife, uh, wifey Skulden. Um, I don't <laughs> know if that'll matter. I did not flag if uh, they got named. They definitely didn't say anything in that line of dialogue in the episode, so. No. Uh, or in terms of, like, who they are, either the boy or the wife, so. Yeah, uh, that'll be that'll be fun to return to for next season. Um, well, yeah. So I think they did one really interesting thing that, like, I'm too stupid as a person to make anything of. But like, usually when we've got Mon in the car, in fact, I haven't talked enough about how much I love that car. Her like flying space car is one of the best. It's things a Cadillac. I've ever seen. It's I like literally it. a it's ca- so or a Rolls Royce. It's probably the better, more classier. It's uh, so good. I, yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's little, her little Rolls Royce Phantom. Um. So usually we see her. <laughs> through the mirror, through the window rather, um, and from the side. Um, and and it's always through the glass and she's always kind of only occupying like I think like a third of the frame or whatever and the rest of it is taken up of like a reflection of Coruscant and then the glass itself the, the window glass itself um, and this one we get her dead on no glass between us and her dead on no reflection just her having her little panic um, and it's the first time we're kind of like fully in the car with her from the start of one of the shots mm, yeah. and I don't fully know what to make of that except for like maybe this is Mon Ma was like equivalent of like the Kubrick stare and this is her fine like kind of her she's no longer looking through the looking glass she's got her own kind of clarity of purpose and you know the the need to reflect things back onto or this isn't the mon that is acting anymore this is the mon that is about to go like gloves off yeah no it's great like honestly that is like the hottest coat unbuttoning I have ever seen in anything in my life god um Despite being a smaller part of this episode, uh, Genevieve O'Reilly absolutely kills it. Um, yep. Like this entire season, I think she's been a revelation. I think this was something Tony Gilroy uh, talked about recently in one of his interviews, um, how like they were looking about who they could bring back or who they could cast, and like he just found like a raw diamond when he met Genevieve, um, and like oh shit, mm-hmm. like she she can do more than just stand there for a few seconds in a picture. Um, we can actually have her say stuff and like do stuff and <laughs> act. And it turns out, holy shit, she's really great at it. Um, yeah. I know like sometimes other parts of the show are so strong that people are like, I don't even need the Mon Mothma storyline. Uh, but I think uh, well, Genevieve O'Reilly has been such a revelation in that role and that everything yeah. that they've done around her and how it's intersected mostly with Luthen, but also with Val um, has all been worth it. Like, I, I don't think I would cut that at all um, or yeah. like diminish it or say it's not up to snuff with the stuff that's happening elsewhere, even if it is no. a little more not the main titular characters, specific immediate dangers. Yes. Well, and I think it's also, it's so important because it shows that like this reformist, this liberal reformist approach to politics, it doesn't bring less pain than the revolutionary approach, but it's pointless pain. Mon is suffering the whole way through the season. Mon is suffering and suffering and suffering, and her pain means nothing. Her pain means nothing. The big cash windfall that the rebellion gets doesn't come from her family fortune. It comes from them going guns out and stealing a stealing money from an imperial base, right? Like she's totally out of that equation. She's just sad and miserable and in pain and hurting and all of her relationships are suffering and she's paranoid and having really bad time. And it's all for nothing. It's all for nothing. And 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 the point of having her in 
this plot as, as this sort of parallel to everything else that's going on is to show that there is there is a an inevitable and unavoidable futility to reformism and and really when when you're at the point that you're at and I'm going to be very careful to remind people that I'm only referring to a fictional uh, a fictional universe and I would never in any way advocate for an armed revolution um but in this fictional parody satire universe uh, the only way out there is one way out and that one way out is with guns and bombs uh, my little armalite uh, and if and if Mon Mothma would just get the guns and bombs, she wouldn't feel less pain, but it wouldn't be pain that 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 meant something and that actually contributed to something greater instead of what she's feeling right now. And you have to have that in there because otherwise people can make the argument, why don't they just go t- send a bill? <laughs> I'm just a bill style to to the Senate. Well, the answer is because it's a fucking waste of time. Yeah, and I think everything about the show sings better with this crystallization of what like the neoliberal version of trying to fight an empire looks like. Um, yeah, it, it like all the stuff with what the working class Ferrix is and everything that Cass is dealing with and Aldani or in Narkina, um, those all work so much better with the backdrop of the people a little closer to the imperial core and closer to those levers of power, even if the em- emperor himself is still the real power there. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I also think it, it, it is kind of interesting because um, it gives a sense of scale to the empire um, because we feel like Mon is at this really high level. Um, Mon Mothma is Mon Mothma and she's this figure we've always known. And and Mon is not quite in the same tier as Palpatine, but theoretically she was because Mon was in the same tier as Padme um, and Padme um, was only slightly junior to to Palpatine as a sort of entity, uh, a political entity in the Old Republic. Uh, and so it, it, it follows then that Mon is certainly of that tier, if ineffectual, of that tier politically and in terms of the galaxy sort of hierarchy um, now. Um, and Mon in the ISB <laughs> is not even being spied on by a dude on contract She's being spied on by a dude who just answers for funsies, for shits and giggles, to a guy who is on the down in the ISB. Like, Blevins is getting owned repeatedly, has lost all of his big kind of important um, portfolios. He's on the down and down, but that's who's watching over Mon Mothma. And so we've got that sense of scale there. And then we see who the people who are winning in the ISB right now are, and that's Dedra. And where is Dedra focusing on? Well, she's focusing on Cashin and Co. Um, and so Mon is like living this big high-powered life. Um, and so ostensibly should be getting focused on by the biggest and most high-powered people in the ISB. But that's not the case at all. She's only getting focused on by the people who just don't fucking matter, whose time has come and gone. Um, and having that sense of scale for where the priorities are of the good side and the bad side, I think really helps to develop the the, the sort of political sensibilities of the show to just even greater heights. And helps to kind of build in that sense of like grim inevitability, both for Mon's effect, uh, eventual defection to, well, not defection, but like escape to the rebellion proper, and also for what will become of Cashin's death in Rogue One. Oh yeah, no, that's 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 really good. Oh god, that's really good. Uh, Mon Mothma, she was in Rogue One, right? She shows up and does nothing like she usually yeah. does. Yeah, <laughs> it's so weird now in context. Oh, man. Um, we should also mention real quickly that um, Spell House was a whole lot of spell nothing. Uh, <laughs> there's just 
uh, I actually really like this because there was a little bit of an open question because some people thought everything happening on Ferrix might be a diversion and the last episode might focus more Me, on Spellhouse. Me, I'm someone. <laughs> you are, I was trying to just say there was discourse <laughs> happening. I wasn't trying to pin it oh, on you. Oh, I was you. a big old dipshit, yeah. Um, but, but no, that is very interesting, but it's also very confident storytelling that they can put this thing in and act like it might be a big deal. Um, and then it's basically... Like Marva, it kind of dies off screen and we just kind of get like a post-mortem like debriefing with uh, Partagaz and Dedra, who herself, she's just specifically pissed because like they didn't take anyone alive. Um, and yep. uh, pa- uh, Partagaz is more like the emperor just needed to have like some corpses presented to him to say like something was done about Aldani. Oh, God, um, yes, that was so good. Um, and, and it's just showing like this, this is kind of how Empire thrives. Um um, it panicked a little bit after Eldani, but now that they were able to like lay some, you know, just kill some people and show, quote unquote, the might of the Empire, various people within it are uh, satisfied, even if Dedra herself is not. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and also, right. So like she made this whole face about the whole kind of Krieger thing where, you know, she was kind of a bit checked out from it um, at the end because her big priority was the cash and stuff. And so she wasn't involved and she doesn't have any, her fingerprints are not at all on the Krieger stuff. And the Krieger stuff was a big old success. And her thing, her little pet project Mm. was a massive L in the ledger. She fucked it up so bad. There's nobody left for her to torture and get information out of because they're all on that rickety ass, like Pontiac, or whatever out of town they're getting the hell out of dodge and she's had taken loss after loss after loss and is now gonna have to fuck Cyril Karn which is an even bigger loss for her than anything and the stuff that she looked down her nose on and and kind of washed her hands of was a big old success and it's the thing that the emperor is gonna be all happy about he's gonna use that as, as his little propaganda thing and and what a kind of perfectly wrapped up way of being like Dedra sucks ass. She's not, she's, she's clever. She's definitely clever, but she's so not as clever as she thinks she is. And, and look at all the different ways, ways in which she is lost. And, and, and this massive loss that she is now suffering is just a, a minuscule, unimportant little kind of blip in the radar of this wider story and show. Oh God, it's just so good. Um, she just doesn't see it. Um, there's that line that Clem says in his flashback is the man who sees everything is more blessed than cursed. Um, and you're really seeing like the limits of which characters can't look beyond their own little containment, um, versus the, uh, characters who kind of can. And Dedra is definitely someone who's more narrowly focused. Um, and like she finds something and she, that makes it her thing. Uh, Cyril is very much the same way. He finds her and makes it his thing. Um, it, it just, I think very interesting how they uh, pulled all that together. Um, and they, they built up Spellhouse enough where if they wanted to do half an episode set piece there somehow, um, they very could have, and it would have felt organic to the story that's been told so far. Um, but the fact that they're able to just basically write it off as an imperial footnote, like an error in accounting, um, I think speaks also to what the Empire is capable of. Um, they're just like, oh yeah, by the way, off screen, just a whole bunch of like theoretical rebels just died. They just got completely uh, desolated and destroyed. Yep. Well, and it, it speaks to 
my king uh, Nemec's point on Aldani, which is it's much better for the Empire to hide between 40 atrocities than it is for them to hide behind one. And Dedra's focused on committing one atrocity, and she's focused too hard on that. And she doesn't recognize that the volume is the point mm, um, and that yeah. she just needs to keep going and keep pumping and keep going. And and it's and it's this important kind of thing that the show just does so fucking well. God, this show is just win after win is the, the people who have thought about it. Nemec, Marva are the people who are right. The people who have sat down and thought about the importance of the world, you know, the significance of the things in their lives. They've thought about their material conditions. They've thought about their political conditions. They've thought about the mechanisms of the world and the mechanisms of the empire and have developed an analysis from their observations and then articulated it to other people. And the people who have done that are right. And the people who are more sort of frenetic, like Dedra, who haven't quite gotten into the sort of systemic, like the systems thinking that is required to to really have a sort of coherent and successful, um, uh, like like I- I- ideological underpinning, and um, they are unsuccessful in what they do. And um, Marva says this is the way the empire works, or what Marva says is, I have observed this. This happens because of this reason. This is why the empire works. Therefore, we need to do X, Y, and Z things to overcome the oppression of the empire. Therefore, this minor loss doesn't matter so much, but this big or this minor win does. And so Marva is right. Marva is able to catalyze a rebellion. Nemec is able to say 50 different things going bad doesn't it, it like it's just the noise. This is just the strategy of the empire. One thing doesn't really matter to them. It doesn't cut through the noise. And Nemec is, of course, absolutely correct. He's right about the statistics. Dedra focuses, she gets it right that there's a lot of things going on and that the things that seem random maybe aren't random, but she's failed to think of it at a systemic point of view. She thinks it's a conspiracy and it's not a conspiracy. It's it's organic. And so she misses the forest for the trees. And so she's wrong and she loses. And the show emphasizes over and over and over again that the people who think systematically about the world around them will get things right. And the people who think on a sort of conspiratorial or, or sort of um, stochastic kind of view of, of the world are going to get things wrong. Kind of the last two things I want to talk about um, are the final uh, showdown with uh, Cass and Luthen, um, mm. or not showdown per se, uh, but it kind of is actually, um, yeah. because uh, Luthen, who uh, bikes back to his Fondor uh, without Cass, without having uh, been able to collect him or kill him or whatever he was you know, planning to do, kill him, I guess, um, he bikes back to his Fondor, and it's very much shot in the same way that the triumphant Cass and Luthen escape in episode three was shot with the, you know, wide shots of him going over the field and his little speeder bike. And uh, when he gets on his ship, uh, he finds that his droid's not responding because Cass is there. Who's given him his really awesome, cool gun. I don't know how else to describe it and said, you know, either kill me or take me in Um, whatever you want to do, but it's your choice. Now I'm not going to make it hard for you to find me. Uh, and it's just beautiful. It's one of those things that works beautifully because we know like he's not going to kill him there. Um, but it feels like it is an earned end to this season of television um, in mm-hmm. terms of like where we started with the questions that Luthen was asking Cass specifically at um, in the third episode when he was really trying to recruit him in the first place. Like, don't you want to fight these bastards for real? That kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but now that Cass knows, you know, 
he knows what he knows and he he feels how he needs to feel kind of thing. Um, he knows this is this is the logical end one way or another. And I love that um, Stellan doesn't really say anything. He just gives it like a smile before it cuts back to Cass and the roll of credits. Um, I thought it was perfectly played and it made a perfect endpoint as opposed to having Luthen like turn his walking stick into a lightsaber and get involved in the big skirmish that was happening, you know, on Rick's road, um, which I thought was always a possibility that he would be a little more involved with that. But once he sees it goes to shit, he's like, well, I can't be here anymore. Um, even though I think he really vibed with Marva's speech. Um, I think specifically the line about fighting these bastards, like his exact words that he said in episode three, like really resonated with him. Um, I just yeah. like everything in terms of how they wrapped up the season for Cass and Luthen together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also like, again, this is this point of Luthen is making the right call here because like it would be good and noble for him to go get in the fray. Um, and he would be, you know, the kind of ideal martyr in some ways if he died on barracks beating the shit out of some stormtrooper or whatever. But that would be missing the forest for the trees. Uh, and he has bigger things to do. And it's not that the lives of the people on Ferex aren't incredibly important and that the this uprising, this moment of uprising on Ferex isn't incredibly important. It is. It obviously is. But there needs to be hundreds more of these. And Luthen needs to be around to to coordinate to 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 ensure that these things do happen and you know the melshi thing someone needs to make sure that everybody else hears about this Pe the people need to know and if luthan go gets in the fray then he's one less person with the means to leave and the means to make sure that the rest of the world knows mm -hmm, who mm -hmm. won't be able to tell that story and won't be able to 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 agitate further in the way that things need to be agitated and so he makes the correct call to not get involved um and he can have his sort of faith um restored or, or or his sort of faith um reinvigorated by by Marva's words and by by witnessing um this uprising and then my cash in coming to and being like right time time to fucking go let's do this um but he doesn't need to have the sort of noble Jedi death for 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 the 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 sort of impact and value of that to to kind of uh be be the greater and I think it is again the show doing a very good job at undermining the sort of individualistic attempt at, at um or this individualistic sort of mode of um uh, of storytelling which says that the the big you know one man moments of heroism are more important than the moments of stepping back into the shadows and letting the system work or helping to make the system work um this show is really saying you don't need to have one person stick out from the crowd and have their moment of nobility for something to still be good um, and for a story itself to still be good and worth hearing. And, and it's just a nice kind of uh, counterposition antidote to, to to Star Wars ethos in so many ways. Yeah, it really is like the resolution or the climax or whatever you want to call this last scene is two people coming together. Um, it's yeah. not it's not Cass shooting Cyril or Dedra or something like that. There isn't some big thing that blows up. Then there was plenty of stuff blowing up. Um, but the finish is literally <laughs> these people are coming together to do something um, in concert together um, to fight for something together, which I think is great. Um, I, we should also probably talk about the post credit scene. Um, you know, that oh, yeah. spectacular post credit scene. Thank you, Marvel movies for making us have to sit through Every credit scene forever now. Actually, that I don't mind. You know, the workers should probably be noted up front like they used to do, um, as opposed to That's at the end. That's true. But, yeah. um, anyways, we see the construction of the Death Star. Um, seems to confirm that the big hexagonal spire things they were building at Narkina were 
for this, which I think kind of became the obvious conclusion once Cass said they were building something important, um, unless they like really pulled out something new, um, which aside from Andor, Star Wars has not pulled out something new in a long ass time. No. Um, I think I was pretty sure that was the Death Star, but um, any real thoughts on it? No, um, you know what? I didn't like it. Um, I really didn't like it. Um, I thought it was bad. Um, and I think it kind of undermined the cool and interesting point, which is the alienation from the labor. However, despite me not liking it and not really th- like it was beautifully shot. It was beautifully shot. And they really did a great job of setting up the sequence. It was obviously storyboarded. Well, it looked beautiful. I love how they shoot space in this. I just didn't like it and didn't think it was a good or worthwhile inclusion. And yet, in some ways, I'm kind of grateful they included it because it was a glup shitto moment. And despite it being a glup shitto moment, my opinion of the show is no less, like, none the lesser uh, for it. And I'm like, that in itself, like, them putting in something that I fucking hated and thought was dumb as shit, and me still being like, this is the best TV show I've ever seen in my entire life. It is 110% perfect. No notes is like such a sign of strength for the show because, like, all right, I'll be mad, but who cares? It's still perfect. Uh, and, and that's really where I'm at on this. <laughs> yeah, they kind of threw it at you as a test. It's like we're going to have um, Cad Bane show up in the post credits completely unannounced, and we'll see if you like this <laughs> or hate this. Um, or like you hate oh God, Andor now so after cursed. this, and you don't hate Andor, so we know it's good. Um, yeah. If I if it was up to me, if I was the editor of the show, I would not have this scene specifically. Yeah. Um, the only reason I don't mind is because this w- does relate both to Andor's Endgame, and I also imagine this will be maybe a running through line through some of season two. Um, if it was something more in the, like, Nick Fury shows up and says Avengers, and it's talking about other properties, like if this was a setup for Ashoka or, like, The Acolyte or whatever else. I don't, I don't even know whatever else is coming right now. Yeah. Mando season three or something like that. Um, I would be less keen on it. Um, but since this was basically just a visual of something that I is that is very relevant to Cass himself, um, it's fine. Um, yeah. The only question for me, I guess, would be when are we? Um, and I don't need to get into a whole predicting what happens in season two, but it looks like a nearly complete Death Star. Um, but I wouldn't imagine the Death Star is active for five years before it blows up Alderaan, which is kind of yeah. the timeline they're setting so this up. This is the like thing. So in clones we do see the framework of the death star in like it's kind of skeleton so ostensibly it is a planet-sized thing ostensibly it could reasonably so clones is like what uh 23 bby i think 23 years before the battle of yavin which is when the death star blows up um so ostensibly 20 ish 17 years to get to that point and then five years from getting the because they're building that radar kind of disc for the death star five years to get to like completion i guess they still have to build like the interior maybe like it doesn't yeah i guess that makes sense yeah, I just like I like <laughs> I think it's funny because they're having to respond to this insane thing of uh George Lucas having no fucking filter and being like, what if we showed the Death Star and attack the clones? And now the chronology is just fucked forever because of it. Mm-hmm. Um so it's funny seeing them having to kind of squirm and finagle around that as well. And then to like throw in the slightly weirder thing of like, what if the thing that they are building is the radar dish that kills Alderon? Like <laughs> a bit of an own. Yeah. But like, yeah. 
Okay. I mean, I don't really think it matters, but I was almost kind yeah. of expecting a pullout to the uh, last Jedi, the Return of the Jedi Death Star, the one that's like not completely completed. Um, maybe they learned after oh, yeah. this one that maybe you should get the main cannon in there first so that if anyone attacks, <laughs> you know, you can be ready with it. But not that that was the problem with um, how the first Death Star was destroyed. It was just something that stuck out. I guess they could have to possibly furnish all of the inside after they complete the outside. Um, but it definitely <laughs> kind of looked like the satellite or the, the yeah. main cannon was the last piece and that it was pretty close to completion. So it'll be interesting to see how it does, if it does factor into and or season two, which will be spanning those entire five years. But, you know, we wanted to do a thing here. We wanted to read Nemec's manifesto to you. Like we are the founding fathers in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia in 1776. <laughs> there will be times when the struggle seems impossible. I know this already. Alone, unsure, dwarfed by the scale of the enemy. Remember this. Freedom is a pure idea. It occurs spontaneously and without instruction. Random acts of insurrection are occurring constantly throughout the galaxy. There are whole armies, battalions, that have no idea that they've already enlisted in the cause. Remember that the frontier of the rebellion is everywhere, and even the smallest act of insurrection pushes our lines forward. And then remember this. The imperial need for control is so desperate because it's so unnatural. Tyranny requires constant effort. It breaks, leaks, authority is brittle, oppression is the mask of fear. Remember that. And know this, the day will come when all these skirmishes and battles, these moments of defiance, will have flooded the banks of the Empire's authority, and then there will be one too many. One single thing will break the siege. Remember this. Try. Oh, Yoda's in shambles. Um, <laughs> anything you want to say about Nemix Manifesto before? Um, two things. One, Chucky Arla, uh, sing up the raw. Uh, two, uh, Tony Gilroy this morning, or it was this morning for me, uh, literally said the words, Nemec is Trotsky, and I fucking ascended to heaven immediately. I literally read it and went, no, so loudly. I woke up Connor, who was asleep because it was 7.30 in the morning, and had to be like, no, no, it's okay. Go back to sleep, but go back to sleep. But also, Nemec confirmed trot. Um, and I've been riding this high all day. Uh, so this show is fucking perfect. Uh, Nemec is Trotsky. Nemec is Trotsky. Cashin is uh, young Stalin. What the fuck? Yoda is dead. How is this show so perfect? <laughs> As I joked, any, everything Tony Gilroy says about this show is like if I had a gun to his head and was telling him what to say in answer to these questions, he's just like actually <laughs> saying them. Um, it is absolutely unbelievable. God, God. this show, man. Uh, um, so as this is our last episode on, or this is the last episode of Andor that we're covering, uh, we will be slowly returning back to the Lord of the Rings. Um, we will start dropping two Towers episodes again for you in the following week. And we'll be back to that. However, I think in about a month, me and Emily are going to record one last Andor wrap-up episode um, because there's so much stuff we didn't even get a chance to talk about. The Time Grappler kicked some dude out of a tower this episode, and we couldn't even <laughs> find time to talk about that. Um, so there's you know much to consider, much to discuss. Um, so we'll come back, probably rewatch the season, and uh, kind of give our final thoughts on Andor Season 1 in an episode that we'll drop to you sometime early, very early 2023. 
So before we sign off, we'd like to thank our five and ten dollar patrons today. Just a reminder, patrons at the five dollar level and above can get a Middle Earth name designed by Emily, and we will read them off on air. Ten dollar patrons are read off every week, and then five dollar patrons are read off uh, uh, on a rotating basis. So starting with our ten dollar patrons, I'd like to thank Johnny Flores Jr., aka Lothaman of Palinque. And Ed the Revelator, a.k.a. Silent Spider, Guardian of Carathungal. Haley Glyphs, a.k.a. Ewilandele. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Matthew Abbott, a.k.a. Aronwo Minyatar. Maddie Hugh, a.k.a. Idrenor of Kolkortad. Cam Lewis, a.k.a. Salquandil. Zach Newman, a.k.a. Lacrimelme. And for our $5 patrons, we'd like to thank Adonino Ered Hasir, a.k.a. Stacy, And Lestariel of Losile, a.k.a. Maddie. And I'm sure I screwed up your name again. Sorry, Maddie. <laughs> that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get access to special bonus content, an exclusive Patreon episode every month, and early access to all episodes. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as J.R. Tweedin, which is where you can find me maybe on Twitter, uh, which is where I will be the Brad Pitt and Inglorious Bastards to whatever the hell was going on in this episode. Saying Sigrona Tima to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethraglier and Drethion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. And for our $5 patrons, patrons, motherfucker. All right. (laughs) And know this, the day come when all these skirmishes and battles, these moments of defiance will have flooded the banks of the empire's authority. And then there will be one too many. One single thing. Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to start that paragraph again.